Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thunderstruck. Adjective. Shocked and amazed by the power of fun on Carnival. Riding Bolt, the world's first roller coaster at sea, Brian got thunderstruck so hard, his 93-year-old grandmother felt it 3,000 miles away in Nebraska and immediately booked a cruise. Hooray! Get thunderstruck starting at 289. Carnival. Choose fun. Cruises are in U.S. dollars per person, double occupancy. Taxes, fees, and port expenses additional. Restrictions apply. Full details on Carnival.com. Ships registry, Bahamas, Panama. Moms are amazing at tracking down hard-to-find items. Library books, socks, you name it. But sometimes help is welcomed. Care.com makes it easy to find babysitters near you. Sitters with the experience and skills your family needs, like after-school pickup and homework help. You just post a job for qualified sitters to apply. And since all Care.com caregivers are background-checked, you can feel confident about interviewing and hiring. To get the child care help you need, sign up now at care.com. Hey, this is TV personality Eric Bowling and NFL Hall of Famer Brett Favre. We're coming together for a new weekly podcast. Everyone, you got to subscribe. Bowling with Favre from politics, sports, finance, culture, nothing off the tables, maybe even a Kardashian comment. (laughs) One of the disappointing things of the whole Trump administration was when he left office and pardoned 143 people, the Tiger King didn't get a pardon. I mean, are you kidding me? <laughs> I watched one episode, by the way. He was a good guy. He just, was he, though? I don't know. I liked him a lot more than Carol Baskin. <laughs> Get new shows every week from Podcast One and LiveByLive.com. Old friends, great stories, intriguing conversation on Bowling with Far. We may talk a little hunting. That's your neck of the woods, Brad. And, bi- and biking. And biking and hiking. Subscribe now on the Podcast One app, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, LiveByLive.com, and everywhere you get your favorite podcasts. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I am Danny Wu, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Jared Weiss, my colleague at The Athletic, who covers the Boston Celtics but watches the entire league. And so we start out the first half or so of the pod is going in-depth on the Celtics season so far. Jalen Brown's growth, Jason Tatum's season, what's going on with Kemba Walker, center rotation, all that fun stuff. And then we get into a broader conversation on the rest of the Eastern Conference and buyers-sellers, what the top of the East looks like and everything else. So really fun conversation, runs a little bit over an hour. I hope you really enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. As always. This has been a a pretty interesting early stretch for Boston. I mean, it's been, you know, personnel going in, personnel going out, and, you know, you had had COVID absences, of course, and everything else. And so we'll get into a lot of the nitty gritty, but I wanted to kind of start with a big picture take from you of just how you think this has gone so far. What, the Celtic season? Yeah. Uh, I... (laughs) It's like somewhere between decent and mediocre, I guess. It's uh, there, there's some sort of weird, less less positive yet less negative middle ground between t- those two adjectives that I think would describe it. Because I mean, the record they're 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 a little bit over five hundred, uh, but then the rest of the league is kind of in that same boat. There's very few teams that are really that are really looking good right now. So they you know they kind of knew that it would be a, a rough start to the year. So it's not like it's a huge surprise. Um, but it's every week it kind of changes because they're role players. Who's good. Who's available. That seems to be changing on a pretty frequent basis. Um, you know, Kemba Walker, he just got back and he's, 
it looks pretty bad early on and it's like starting to come around pretty slowly, but it's still coming around slowly enough to the point that it feels like it's a long slog. So it's like pretty much everything around Tatum Brown and I guess Daniel Tice, who's had a pretty good year, like everything around them has just been like kind of completely up and down the whole year. But at least they have that, you know, the central tenant to hold on to. Right. And during this completely crazy regular season of basketball, I've been broadly, when possible, taking a really long view. And I actually think the long view for the Celtics is is pretty positive. And so what I mean by that is what has changed the way that I think about where this team could be in the playoffs. And Jalen Brown's continued growth, I think, is an important part of that. Now, some of the shooting has toned down a little bit. He's not at the the completely insane numbers from before. And I, I was getting asked a lot on various things about, you know, like how much of this is real and all this. And what I said is I'm like a lot of it. I mean, he's the the nature of what Jalen Brown is being asked to do is fundamentally different than before. And I think he's doing a good job. And that is extremely important, whether or not the Celtics need that at every moment of every game. So Brown is one part of it. But then also, like, you know, I think some some of the role players have really seen a step up. And like, if Peyton Pritchard can be an actual rotation player in the playoffs, that is a huge positive for the Celtics team. Yeah. And it's funny, they need it because last night was the Brad Wanamaker revenge game uh, where they, they played, played Golden State. And Jeff Teague was the guy that they replaced Wanamaker with. And Jeff Teague has kind of been... It's pretty much been a nightmare season so far for it, where he was shooting lights out very early on, and then he's looked pretty much completely washed ever since then. You know, but every once in a while, he breaks out some pretty impressive moves. But uh, people were frustrated because they see Wanamaker, who's a more well-rounded and steady player than Teague is. And so when Teague isn't scoring, he's like bringing nothing to the table. But it looks like the way that it's working out for the Celtics, it's really that Peyton Pritchard is replacing Wanamaker, and Pritchard is looks better than Wanamaker even did so far uh, when he's been healthy. And then Teague just kind of gives them that ball-handling attacker that they were missing. So it's really just more that Pritchard is the one that's really replacing Wanamaker. And so far this year, Pritchard's been really good. I mean, his, his aggressiveness and persistence on both ends of the court really kind of really lifts the floor of the team whenever he's out there. And he was shooting pretty well before he uh, he hurt his knees. So I'm sure it'll take him a little while for that to come back. But he's generally been a pretty good shooter for the last couple of years of his career. So, I mean, it looks like they definitely have hit on a solid rotation player. And, I mean, his biggest strength is his his mindset, his aggressiveness, his confidence, his comfort under pressure. So I would assume he's probably going to hold up in the playoffs pretty well. It's just that obviously, you know, every rookie gets some level of shock when they get to the playoffs and they see how much better NBA players get at that point. Sure. And all the Celtics, hopefully and likely, are looking for is, you know, let's call it 10 to 15 minutes from one of those guys. And if Pritchard can deliver that and it, the, the preliminary things, I mean, he's only played in 14 regular season games so far, but I would say the preliminary returns are very positive. And something that I've liked about Pritchard, yes, shooting 43% on threes is, is really great. And yeah, if he could continue that for the rest of his career, Danny Ainge will look like a genius. But I like it when guards are efficient from two, because generally that can mean a couple of different things, almost all of which are positive. One is that means they're not taking bad shots. You know, like one of the ways that young guards regain their own efficiency is by taking too many shots or taking bad shots. And Pritchard hasn't done, I haven't seen him do too much of that. And then another one is generally being good at finishing around the basket. And preliminarily, now we don't have a large sample size here, Pritchard has done a pretty good job there. And so... 
The Celtics are fortunate that they don't need him to be their alpha and their omega offensively, but also Pritchard has been very good defensively, so that has helped. And so, like, the idea that he can settle in as a capable steward and potentially more, like, that, that that is all they need, and if he ends up being more than that, the Celtics can use it. Yeah, I mean, I I think that the big thing with him is that he has a more veteran style skill set. Like the things that make him good is his patience on the ball, his ability to shield the ball well with his body, fight through contact, be able to keep his dribble alive and not have to throw up shots when the defense collapses on him. So he doesn't really panic and make the kind of mistakes that most young rookie ball handlers make. Um, And I don't think that's just a matter of him getting lucky so far. I think those are just the traits that make him a solid player. And I, I think the reason why he's been overachieving compared to expectations so far is that for one he's quicker than he was in college like when I, I remember just watching the tape on him before the draft and he was like barely getting by the defenders in the Pac-12 and so I figured once he gets to the NBA he's going to really have trouble getting in front of guys but so far his first step has just been so quick and a big part of that is even though he's not really much of an athlete um, he's just got great balance and he's one of those guys that like when he pushes off of the floor his body just moves off of that so gracefully so you know he when he takes like a load step to start attacking it he doesn't have to like kind of load up and then start to accelerate he just moves immediately and so he just he he starts going into motion faster than everybody else does but, but he doesn't obviously have the top end speed that a lot of the you know main rotation guards in the NBA do but that doesn't matter half of the time when you're playing in the half court so you know his, his agility is is just done wonders for him really on both ends of the floor um and then you know the shooting I wouldn't expect him to be a 43% shooter for the rest of his career, but you know, he, he, he pretty much has been like a high 30s shooter in high usage as the primary guy in college. So it's certainly reasonable to expect him to be floating around 40% since he's not going to really be the focal point of the offense very often. Right. And Pritchard, you know, he's he has a, a pretty good mix of self-created and not from from three. He's doing a lot of his own stuff, obviously, from two, like a lot of like a lot of guards that primarily are on second units. And that's that's good. I mean, that's what you're looking for. It's it's a healthy mix for Pritchard. And what I think you were getting at is and I think this is such an important way to think about things is that the success that Pritchard has had is largely repeatable. Now, I don't know how scalable it is. Like, I don't know if you if you slide him in and try to ask him to do a lot more, how that's going to work. Now, I've been wrong on that before, plenty of times. But I, I, I don't know. And remember that Pritchard, he's a little bit older. He already turned 23, turned 23 earlier this week, I believe. And that's fine. Like, you know, the Celtics took him with the 26th pick you're not you're not necessarily like trying to find somebody whose number is going to be hanging from the rafters and if he ends up being better as i said they can use it but we can go to jalen brown and, and brown's early in the season like what was what was so exciting to me is that the celtics needed due to kemba being out they needed somebody to step in to a larger creation role and so with jalen brown what i've really liked is i think he's been better as a creator and i think he's been more effective as a scorer and that is a really nice combination the celtics would love to have both of those but i think that's what bodes well so even if Parts of this toned down a little bit. There's still a better player here than I thought there was three months ago. Yeah, I mean, the only thing that was unsustainable from the very beginning was just that he was hitting every single tightly contested pull up. Right. It was just uh, to a ridiculous degree. Uh, but you know, now that I think you know the, that Warriors game was actually a nice example where he was horrendous 
for or I, he was shooting horrendously for the first few quarters. I think he was like something like five for 16 for the first three quarters of the game. But he was still super aggressive and just kept attacking and getting to the rack and taking his shots. And he finally caught fire in the fourth quarter and they were able to win in huge due part because of that. And so I just think the the, the star mindset has finally settled in for him where he's just going to continue to attack. Um, he's not going to be thrown off by his shooting poorly and on certain shots, which I mean, that already was kind of there during the playoffs last year. I think that was where it really started the show. But this year is just showing and he's kind of more comfortable operating in open space and getting into different kind of attacking angles than in the past where it was a lot more simplified and they had to kind of run specific actions to get him going downhill. So he's just picked up a lot of the isolation and pick and roll skills that he didn't have before. Um, and then his footwork is just unbelievable. Yeah. His footwork is already up there as some of the best among wings in the entire league. And that's just a, that's really surprising because his footwork and his handle were both pretty mediocre coming into the NBA. He had really great long strides and great power and athleticism, but he didn't really have control over his momentum for the first couple of years. And that's just changed so much over the last couple of years. And now he's out there. He takes one long stride. He's able to completely hit the brakes on that and shift direction. And he just he uses hesitation moves and just kind of little in and out moves with his dribble really more than anything now compared to in the past when it was just like huge euro steps, big spin moves, you know, really big all or nothing moves where he's just kind of going into it blindly hoping it's going to work. So his subtlety and his creativity have just gotten so much better. Yeah, and you, you see it a lot with players after, you know, like their first or second year where things slow down for them. But there's another stage to that when you're asked to do a lot, and especially when a player was not initially. And I think that that's one of the other elements with with Jalen is, I remember watching him a lot at Cal and a little bit when he was in high school, and he he wouldn't let things happen. And I think that's part of why that and his handle being bad were a part of why he his turnover rate wasn't what a lot of people wanted to be at Cal. He had a disappointing season. Also, that Cal team had a lot of, had a really weird roster. There were a bunch of other challenges. But why I was more optimistic about his footwork specifically was I noticed his he he it seemed like he had good feet defensively even going back as far as high school. Like I thought that he you know like it was it it, it from what I recall and you know it's going back six seven years now. I remember liking that about him and Nate was more all in on Jalen Brown's athleticism than I was, but. That part of it, and that, you know, footwork doesn't always translate, it doesn't always necessarily, it's not the same thing, everything fits together, but that part wasn't a surprise, but as you said, like, the handle tightening up, that has been a godsend for him, and that doesn't always happen, it does often happen, Middleton is another example of that, somebody who's really tightened up his handle since he, like, got into a larger role in the league, but it makes life a lot easier for him and by necessity for the Celtics. Sure. And it's funny because th- there's something about Brown's feet that are unique. I don't know if it's he, he has really large shoes or something like that. But when you watch him out there, he's got these kind of like long, sticky legs and then these like huge shoes on. And so uh, maybe, you know, it kind of looks like he's remember, remember those. Um, I think it was the Adidas, the Kobe. And it was like the Stormtrooper boot like that. You know how it just like yeah. kind of like looked gigantic on people's feet. And so their feet look like these like little bodies kind of moving across the court and it made their steps look so heavy. That's kind of what it looks like for him. His steps look like they're really heavy, yet he just kind of glides across the floor like he's on on, on ice skates. And I 
it just it's been really impressive to just see the way that he continues to glide in that fashion. Um, like he's like, he's almost like levitating basically. And he always had that on defense. So he could always kind of, he could, if he had to chase shooters, he could always kind of flow through the weeds on screens. If he had to help and then recover to close out to shooters, he was always so great at being able to make that turn and then fly out to the shooters without like kind of running out of bounds. He was really great at those kind of like short closeouts and it just never quite was translated to the same kind of stuff on offense and i think the first thing he learned was how to do a two-foot jump stop in the lane so that he could stop five feet from the hoop with the ball and have a bunch of different directions he could go with it instead of just kind of driving straight and jumping off of one foot and having to really commit before he goes into the air so i think that was the first step that gave him that that level of freedom to create in in the paint and then eventually he was just able to start dribbling out ahead of himself and have enough control over the ball where he wasn't worried about losing it because initially he was really kind of scared of dribbling into into the teeth of the defense because he was just so worried that they were going to deflect it he wasn't going to be able to make a, a subtle little move to get away from the uh, the defender but now he can kind of really extend that dribble out and keep it really low and then make very subtle little shifts with his ball handling to be able to get in there. So the, just the, the, the flexibility and the dynamism has just changed so much over the last couple of years. And I'm happy you brought up the, the turnovers because that's another striking part of Brown's resume so far this year is that generally, you know, early on in his career, Brown was, I would say he was on the higher end of turnovers for somebody who didn't turn the, who didn't have a ton of usage. Like, you know, like that's a very different role than the role he's in now. And his turnover percentage per 100 plays has actually dropped this year. It's it's not a career low, but it's pretty close to that. And that also, you know, that's another way that somebody can be more efficient as a scorer and a creator is just not not giving it away, not having some of those travels, some of those offensive fouls. And I'm I'm impressed by that so far. And I'm I'm interested to see where Brown's role goes now that Kemba's back, kind of as Brad Stevens and the Celtics are figuring out their ecosystem now. Just like how do they fit all these pieces together? But it's better to have superior pieces than you maybe did earlier. Yeah. And I mean, just on the turnover numbers, up until this season, every single year he's averaged uh more turnovers than assists per game, except for two years ago when he averaged 0.1 assists more than turnovers. But then every other year, it was either 0.1 or 0.2 more turnovers per game than assists per game. This year, it's 3.5 assists to 2.5 turnovers. So the the balance, I think, is finally starting to get there. And frankly, his turnovers are pretty low. I mean, for a guy that's taking 20 shots a game, he's only turning it over two and a half times a game. That's actually very good. It's just that he never got any assists. And I think a big part of that was his role in the offense. He was usually getting the ball with the it was either he was getting the ball in transition with the purpose of scoring or he was the spot up guy that they were kicking it out to in the offense or they were trying to give him like a handoff so we could attack the lane and i think those were the moments where he just really had his blinders on and that's where it's really opened up for him i think it's kind of a tbd honestly on kemba walker so then the other big question well i mean there are two more and we'll hit both of them over the course of this conversation that i had with the celtics was how their big man rotation was going to look. And, you know, they Ainge went into the season with the trio of Daniel Tice, Tristan Thompson, who got the mid-level exception for two years, and Robert Williams, the beloved Time Lord. And I've, you know, I've kind of gone a couple different directions on this over the course of the season, but I think the place to start is actually with Tice because he's been very good. Yeah, he's actually continued to get better (laughs) every single year. I mean, he's, he's 
probably close to an above average starting center, probably, I think, at this point. Um, now that he's once again shooting the three ball well, last year, really the last couple of years, it's been declining. And this year, I think it's right about league average now. Uh, so that's just opened up the pick and pop game so much for them. His passing is getting better. He used to it used to be that I think last year he became a pretty good passer as a like short roller in the pick and roll. But this year we're seeing him passing from out on the perimeter. We're seeing him passing from the post and the dunker spot. So he's he's just turned into a much better player on the ball. I mean, you you obviously you're not going to really ever post him up or try to give him any other you know isolation chance to score. It's just going to be all pick and roll, pick and pop, and you know living in the dunker spot on you know on occasion. But for he's been in this really tricky situation because they had to play double big so much this year and he's been the one that's had to play the four which is probably harder offensively for him than it is defensively because he's just like a lot of the times basically playing a wing where he's spreading out to the corners and while they can shoot the corner three he's you know he can't really put the ball on the floor and try to create you know, off of a closeout and so it's been i think he's done pretty admirably in handling what's been a tricky situation and then of course when he's actually playing the five like he's supposed to he does a pretty good job most of the time. Yeah, and having having Tice step up to that extent, and, and as you said, playing a different role, which I think is extremely important when kind of contextualizing a lot of things, especially early in a season. And to my eyes, you've watched more of the Celtics, of course, than I have. I've been pretty disappointed in, in Tristan Thompson this year. Now, I haven't been the biggest Tristan Thompson believer over the last couple as things have toned down, but how, how have you seen it so far? Yeah, I mean, he hasn't been that good so far. And the, the, the big thing is that he was hurt before the season started, so sure. he, he missed all the training camp, which barely even happened. But, you know, everybody obviously barely had a training camp, but he literally didn't have a training camp. And so I think that's a big part of it. Um, and he's operating in a very different I think system and manner than he was when he was in Cleveland. This team does things a little bit differently. And so that's been a bit of an adjustment, but it's also just been that he just, he's, he's been pretty sluggish and just has been playing with uh, high energy. And I think a big part of why they want him in Boston is that they want someone that's going to be really ferocious underneath and just like really throw people out of the way, scream at people, stuff like that. Cause that's not what Tice is. You know, Ty- Tice is a very active player, but he's not a very angry player. Um, and he, he fouls so much already that he can't really, can't really take the chance of playing a little bit out of control. So they kind of, they really need that tone setting from Thompson and it, he's been pretty quiet and under the radar so far this year. Um, and then when they played Philadelphia recently, uh, he was he, his defense on Embiid was pretty fine as far as that he was pushing Embiid out on the catches he was staying in front of him but Embiid was just like shooting over him every single time pretty effortlessly and that obviously was like really killing them so we haven't seen very many good Thompson games yet especially against good competition but I expect him to kind of slowly get better as the season goes on. Yeah, and I think we're going to see that from a series of players just because the the recovery time and cycle was so different this year with everything basically starting right away. Because, you know, there are often Knicks cuts and injuries in the early part of training camp. And then instead it was just like, 
the season's here. And especially because a lot of teams were missing guys that was thrown thrown more into the fire. And so we'll have to see. But I yeah, I wonder with that, but Tice stepping up makes that makes that easier to take. And also just when they can, you know, add cable players, of course dealing with Marcus Smart's absence right now, then going big less often I think will help a lot. What have you thought about Robert Williams so far? Yeah, it's been very up and down for him. I mean, the guy is he's one of the most erratic players in the league, obviously. Um, and when he's on, he's really, really unstoppable. And then when he's off, he's damaging the team pretty significantly. Uh, I mean, he's he turns it over a ton because he's such an active an aggressive passer that he just constantly makes all sorts of irresponsible passes that yes, he turnovers. does. And it's funny because it's like his his ability to make incredible passes is as good as almost as good as it gets in the NBA for a center. But just like it, it's as simple as that when you're when you're a big and you have the ball up at the top of the arc and there's a wing kind of curling around a screen to come get the ball from you, you're supposed to make it a pretty easy little pitch or handoff. Uh, and that's on purpose because you want it to be up high so there's room to operate. You want to be close to him and you give him the ball so that he has more options to kind of use you as a screener. But instead, Williams keeps throwing the pass to them like before they've even come around the screen. Like It's like Peyton Manning throwing it to a receiver before he's even made his break in the coverage. And it's like very impressive that he can make the pass, but it also results in, results in turnovers or it throws off the play and the play isn't operating with the right timing or from the right angle. And so there's like all that kind of subtle stuff where he keeps trying to make these great plays and he just still hasn't realized the basics are there for a reason. Um, and, you know, he, I mean, his biggest issue was just that on defense, he was really struggling in space. He was really struggling defending past the first action of a play. Uh, th- those were the issues he had last year. He's definitely, he's definitely improved. And it's no longer disastrous, but there are still a lot of offenses that have been able to pretty much put him into no man's land and really toy with him so far. So he's still it's it's clear he's still a, a long ways away from getting to that starting potential that he has. But you also I think we've seen enough of the skill set flash this year that we definitely I think it's pretty clear that potential is there and it's not just a mirage. Well, yeah, and one of the crazy ones, not that you necessarily have to compare them to any facet, but Robert Williams is barely older than Peyton Pritchard. So you think about the the kind of the life cycle of an NBA player, and he still has a still has a lot of room to grow. Like the the player that I think about sometimes with Robert Williams is Jermaine O'Neal, where it took Jermaine O'Neal time, but also there were a lot of people who were confident that it was going to work out who would watch just because you you could see those flashes, and with Robert Williams you do. What bothers me with his passes is there are times when being aggressive is a it's the at least the intention is to create really high value added passes that sometimes don't work. And what bothers me sometimes with Robert Williams is he's throwing an aggressive pass, but the aggressiveness doesn't really make it much better. Like you get what I'm saying? Like if you're throwing a ball through a let's let's go back to the Peyton Manning analogy. If you're going if you're throwing a ball as a quarterback through a tight window, but the two things that happen are you get it knocked down or it's a catch and the guy breaks it for a 30-yard gain or a touchdown. That is very different from a five-yard out that can get intercepted. And I think that's what bothers me a lot with certain passers. And so sometimes he throws the brilliant ones that are real value added. But those turnovers, the ones that aren't really like you're getting too aggressive on something that isn't that isn't the the whole point of it. That those are the ones that drive me a little crazy. Well, the best ones are, and credit to uh, Jeff Clark from Celtics Blog coining this is what, I, what we're calling the time lapse, which is 
is he makes a block and then catches the block to force a turnover and then immediately spins and tries to throw a pass to a teammate to start a fast break and throws it to the other team. <laughs> and he does it like every game, basically. And so he just makes this unbelievable play that's like, how many guys in the NBA can make that play? And then he just immediately undercuts it. And it's a, it's great. I mean, it, it's awesome that he's trying to do these things that are just really rare for a center to do. And it'll allow the team to be able to get away with having an anchor center that can't really shoot outside of 15 feet, although obviously that could evolve over the rest of his career. Um, but it's just like he's just got to realize, like, when you have your center committing turnovers, that really kills the team because it's like you, you're already baking in eight to 12 turnovers a game from your ball handlers. So you just can't afford to have your centers also contributing to that. Right. And right now, Robert Williams is averaging about three per 36 minutes. A couple of other encouraging things for, for Robert Williams. One, his foul rate dropping a little bit. I was it, He wasn't quite at like Mitchell Robinson freaking me out levels before, but has definitely gotten better. And also, I, I've liked Williams being a better rebounder so far this year than he was previously. Yeah, I mean, he's the big thing that he worked on this offseason was improving his core strength and um in the stamina so he said he was just doing a ton of running a ton of core strength training work and it really showed where uh at the beginning of the year he actually guarded Joel Embiid and did a decent job on him and that was because he kept taking blows to the chest and usually when he would get hit in the chest or in the stomach in the past which you know if you're a center you're supposed to go up with two hands and take that verticality contact and it, like it's, it's hard especially when you're someone as skinny as he is and in the past he would just fold completely so a lot of the time he would go up for a verticality and get hit and he would just literally fold in half and his arms would come down and foul the player on a play where he wasn't going to foul the guy and so that was like his his biggest issue was he couldn't even he couldn't even handle a post contact he couldn't handle a verticality because he was just too skinny and that's really improved so that's I think reduces fouling a lot because he just he's getting into position a little bit better now he's not chasing from behind as much as he was before because that's he, last year he was getting passed on pick and rolls so often that he started matadoring on purpose to try to get the block from behind because he was just kind of giving up which was a really bad sign of frustration um, and was very bad for his development because he was just starting to take the easy way out and I think the coaching staff kind of came down on him for that but so that stuff has definitely gotten better and that's why he's getting rotation minutes because he wasn't getting rotation minutes before because he just like he was unplayable out there half the time so I think the fact that he's gotten stronger and his rotations are just a little bit better he's reading the angles a little bit better I think that's been enough to make him a regular rotation player and a lot a lot of the Celtics fans want to see him getting the uh, getting the starting spot instead of Tristan Thompson I would I'd be interested in at least seeing it and, and it's a long season you can go to that and then you don't have to stick with it forever so yeah I mean it, it'd also be fun for somebody like me I, I would enjoy it um the other big story that we haven't talked about yet is I don't even want to call it the second half of J- Jason Tatum's season last year because the season was so abridged and weird. But the question was how much of that insane star turn that he had was going to carry over to this year. And I I would say the, the returns overall have been positive, maybe not quite to that insane level. Maybe that was unrealistic. But I I think that what he is what he has done so far it might also be the kind of the chronology of how everything happened that it's been at least from in my eyes a little bit overshadowed by by what Jalen Brown has done. What do you, what do you how are you feeling about that? 
I think it's just the irony that now Jalen Brown is the one overshadowing Tatum because Tatum's averaging, I think, 27, 7, and 3.5 and assists, which is a nice improvement over last year. He's shooting pretty close to uh, 50, 40, 85. I think he's like at 48.5%, and then he's shooting around 43% on pretty much the same volume as last year, and he's still hitting his free throws pretty well. And his, uh, I think the only thing has just been his free throw rate hasn't increased so yes. far this year. You know, last year he made, I mean, he, I think he averaged like four and a half uh, free throws a game over the course of the entire regular season. But if you just take basically like, you know, 2020 in its entirety on and include the playoffs, he was averaging around seven free throw attempts a game, which was a huge step forward to getting where he you know eventually needs to be. Uh, and this year, it just hasn't really been happening for him. I think a big part of that is that um, he's just been taking a lot of perimeter shots and hasn't had to really drive as much because Jalen Brown's been the one that's been attacking the rim, I think, right. even more so. And Tatum's been kind of the – fr- the focus so far this year has been him kind of sitting back and playing point forward. And actually, we're taping this before the Kings game where all, their entire point guard rotation is out. Tatum is probably going to be playing point guard for most of that game, at least offensively. So I, I, I think that's just been a big part of it is he's been kind of sitting back trying to be a playmaker. And his playmaking capability has gotten a lot better. Yes. And you're not going to see it in the box score as much. And the assist per game has only gone up a little bit. But you're seeing him, you know, whipping really, you know, really impressive entry passes from 30, uh, 30 feet out, running pick and roll to hit cutters that are, run, you know, cutting back door. Um, he's driving and kicking. He's hitting everybody around the perimeter really well. I think he's he's probably even improved as a passer or he's a better passer even than Jalen Brown is right now. Just that the 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 scale of improvement isn't quite the same as from where Jalen Brown was coming from. But Tatum's been a pretty complete player so far this year. And it's just been pretty rare that he's had to really assert himself. Here's one way of putting it. So if we take just the 16 regular season games, it's easier on basketball reference for whatever reason to do these splits. The 16 regular season games after the All-Star break, Tatum, 61% true shooting on 30.5% usage. Fantastic. Like, that's completely ridiculous. And you talked about the free throw temp rate and everything else. This year, 59% true shooting on 31 usage. So, like, that part of it, if you want to take the really big picture, he's been he's been very efficient, and so, some of it has toned down. The free throw attempts is something that I had, had really noticed, and I think you're right that it is just partially the nature of the opportunities that he's getting. But... Tatum has been he's been effective as a kind of as a pick and roll player, both as a scorer and as an assister this year. I think also some of that you would know better than I would, but it seems like some of that he's created some good shots that haven't gone in, and obviously that's never really the passer's fault. It ha- usually you think that equalizes over the course of the year, and so with Tatum, I the passing is is the is the most clear positive and is very encouraging. What I'm still grappling with, and he's become so much better than when I was. Well, I was a Tatum skeptic for for a long time because it's like, what? Where does he like? Where does he fit on a great team? Like, can he be the best player in a good offense? Is I'm still not a hundred percent sure. Like, can he? Is he the? Is he the every down running back necessarily? But he does everything else well, and I think there's still a distinct chance that he gets there. There's a distinct chance that he is there. We're just not seeing it because the way the Celtics run things is a little different. Yeah, as far as the assist numbers, uh, Seth Parno had a great story the other day where he was looking at um, the way that we uh, try to uh, trying to quantify how much teams he's shooting, and he had a couple charts in there that showed I think the Celtics were the worst or second worst in uh, in shooting on open three pointers in the NBA so far. 
So, uh, and I think that's probably mostly their supporting cast is just full of really streaky shooters. So I wouldn't be surprised if Tatum's potential assist to actual assist is probably a massive imbalance. And that's a huge part of it. Um, and I mean, Tatum's only 22 still. He doesn't even turn 23. He's turns 23 exactly a month from when we're recording but, this podcast. But, but Jared, I thought he was 19. Well, so it's um, if anyone has uh, watched uh, The Good Place, they would know that Jason Tatum's time operates on a Jeremy Barami scale. So he keeps progressing in age yet also stays 19 the entire time so Fair enough. um i hope that i can't i can't wait till like his hall of fame speech when somebody makes a he's only 19 joke he's the youngest hall of famer to ever make it um but so yeah i mean like the guy the guy's numbers are pretty phenomenal for somebody in their fourth season let alone for someone who's still only 22 in their fourth season um i i do think he's gonna just watching him so far this year, he is just not – he has not been playing with the ferocity that he was playing in the playoffs because it's early in the regular season. And, you know, the, all these guys are kind of taking it easy so far. So I, I just I think he's going to hit another gear at some point this year. I mean we've seen pretty much every season so far. He's hit another gear as the season has gone on. So I don't know if the numbers are going to dramatically change, but I think that – I mean because the numbers are already – probably like a tier below MVP level right now. I mean, he's putting up pretty much the same numbers that Kawhi and PG and most of the other top wings in the league put up. So, you know, he's getting pretty close there and it's still really early in his career. So I think the team's pretty confident that he's going to be the guy that they can build this thing around, especially now that Jalen is playing pretty close to the same caliber, I would say at this point. And they continue it's funny, they were, I think, two very different prototypes maybe two years ago, and they're starting to kind of mesh and cross paths and their skill set as they get, you know, higher and higher in the um pyramid of the NBA. But I think they still also maintain a pretty distinct identity from each other that should really complement each other so well the way that it looks like now that the Clippers have two years under their belt it looks like Kawhi and PG are figuring that out right and it also could theoretically change the way Danny Ainge wants to kind of fill out the roster around them now that those two players can take on so much more of the offensive workload that can can shift things a little bit but you still and this is something ran into I mean you could see with, with the Lakers acquisition of Dennis Schroeder we'll see how that works out overall but the idea being being that you still want to have, especially if you can get it from sh- from with guys that can shoot, you still want to have more players that can handle the ball, more players that can make good decisions to lighten the workload overall. Yeah, it's so. The, I mean, the big question this year is is Kemba Walker. So, let's say Kemba Walker gets back to playing pretty close to where he was last year before the knee injury started to bother him because you know he did start the All Star game last year, and while all-star game starting is still like you know a bit of a not sure how how relevant that really is he was an all-star last year uh in the first half of the year that was that was reasonable and so the question is now that brown and tatum can handle and run the offense at this level although the offense hasn't been that good yet so it's also while their individual numbers have been very impressive the offense overall has not been that good although i think that's probably more just the um 
the rest of the talent that they have around those guys. But so the question is, how badly do you need an elite pick and roll playmaker at the point rather than you know, more of a Drew Holiday or even George Hill type of player or Emmanuel Quickly type of player is who I would have <laughs> who I thought they should have drafted. Um, although, obviously, I think the pitcher pick worked out pretty well. But so maybe maybe they actually decided they want to shift to a non on ball, more defensive oriented um you know spot up shooter oriented point guard i or or maybe just that they they get another big um wing like someone to replace Gordon Hayward essentially and they just shift Marcus Smart to point guard full time i think both of those are very plausible but you know if Kemba is really playing at his best he's such an elite scorer that i don't see any reason for them to not just try to basically do the same thing that the nets are doing right now yeah i i agree and Having a little bit more flexibility will will do the Celtics a world of good, and that's why I think I'm more positive on how this season has gone so far. Is because they also nobody the other important kind of part of that, and we're going to get into the broader Eastern Conference picture in a second, is that nobody's really running and hiding yet. And so whether it's talking about seating or even just kind of the overall structure, I, I think that given all the adjustments and the absences that they've had to deal with, not that you know other teams have been scot free and the Celtics are saddled saddled. I think that overall things have worked out pretty well. Yeah, I mean, the fact that they're above 500 so far, I think, is is pretty decent. Um, and, and don't forget, they still have Romeo Langford coming back probably yeah, it's, it's, sometime around the All-Star break. Because I, I think I'd heard February before that, and so I was wondering where things are going there. Th- that's genuinely been, the uh, I think, the projected time frame. He just started shooting recently because he he had surgery on his right wrist. So it's like that really kind of affects everything that you do if you're a righty. Um, uh, and so I, I think they're just giving him as much time as humanly possible because he, he's had a lot of injuries so far in his career going back even to high school. And they just they very desperately just want him to get healthy because he showed towards the end of last season when he was healthy that he actually was improving over the course of the year. He was becoming a pretty decent defender. He was finally getting comfortable with his ball handling enough that he was starting to attack and run a little pick and roll. And they need that so badly. They need a six, six, you know, wing that can run pick and roll and create some offense and take some of that pressure off of their main guys. So they, they need them really. They also just, they need another defender of that size because they've been using Javante green. Who's had a very nice defensive season, but just, he can really only run out and transition and attack and he can, attack a closeout decently well, but he doesn't really do that much offensively. So they need somebody with a more comprehensive skill set offensively in that backup wing role. Um, so they really badly need Langford to come in and, and really hit a stride if they're going to really make a serious run this year. And tying in to an extent with Pritchard, like they don't, the Celtics don't need any of these guys to have a, to have be ridiculously effective to be like 30 minute a game guys, but anything they can do 10 to 15 to 20 minutes makes, makes a huge difference. Uh, that serves as a decent transition, though, into the rest of the East, and it is still a work in progress in some of these, most notably Brooklyn. We're still seeing the Nets incorporate Harden and try to figure out the ecosystem now that they also traded away a couple of important contributors. So I, I will the way I framed this to you when we, were, when we were kind of prepping the podcast was I wanted to talk about the top of the East. So the first question to you will be defining the term. Who do you consider the top of the East? 
I think the Sixers, Nets, and Bucks have probably made it pretty clear that they're a tier of their own, uh, even if the Bucks are a few games behind the Sixers. And I, th- I think they're kind of in their own tier. Um, I would probably put the Pacers. You know, I think I put the Celtics on the same tier as the Pacers right now. I, I think they're 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 both. I think they're two teams that are you know their 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 best players are having really good years and they're figuring out how to re you know reevaluate um how the rest of the rotation fits around those guys and obviously the Pacers have a new coach so that's a big part of it um and then i guess the only question is really are the Raptors and the Heat going to get get it together and climb back into that i assume second tier if everything goes well yeah my i i have more confidence that Miami could theoretically get into that first tier just because they've done it before and it is true that this is not exactly the same Miami team as they had last year in the playoffs i i think they really miss Jay Crowder like the, the theoretical full strength heat that we haven't really even seen at all this year like that that iteration of them is going to suffer but what i think is the most fascinating takeaway so far from the east is when thinking about it for the playoffs, which is fundamentally different. I mean, you have you have Philly that's fifteen and six right now. Milwaukee's actually leading in point differential, filtering out garbage time at plus eight, which is really good. Is that I don't see a real like two way behemoth. Now there are teams that could get there, especially the Brooklyn Nets. I mean, their offense is jaw dropping, but. I don't think I think it's weird to to think about like kind of how to reconcile last year's Bucks team because they were so dominant in the regular season but a lot of us didn't have complete faith in the playoffs for some pretty justifiable reasons especially as things turned out but I don't I don't see that you know that real that real bully on the block like right now I, I I've wondered about this I haven't done like a straight tears podcast with that more in a little while we did a different theory the last time but I don't know if I have an East team right now in that same, like in the same tier with the Lakers and the Clippers, though, obviously a bunch of these teams are knocking on the door and might be there as soon as like a week or a couple or like a month. I mean, I, I do think Philadelphia's at least they've, they've got a foot in the door there. Sure. Um, because when, when their offense is flowing through Simmons, the flow is really great, especially just the way that I mean, it, seeing the way that Curry and green really helped them spread the floor. And now that Harris is having a good season, like they really, do look like the team they were supposed to be last year and it's just so great to watch and then Embiid is now that he's shooting decently well from three-point land even if he's taking a lot less threes than he was a couple years ago that's enough that it's made him pretty much an you know an unstoppable force I think he's at least the I mean well didn't he just win East player of the month right so yeah he's been the best player in the East so far this year so I, I think the Sixers both in their overall structure and flow the way that the rotation is working so far this year and the fact that their top player has been the top player of the conference I, I'm pretty comfortable putting them as the as the king of the conference at this point um, and that's mostly just because the Nets won they're just so brand new in their current iteration and they're their defensive question mark clearly is still there, especially after watching that Wizards game where it's pretty apparent that Nets are going to have to win every game 145 to 140, essentially. And, you know, th- that's probably a reasonable uh, way for them to go about it. Here is the clearest argument in favor of, Phil- of Philadelphia being there. When Joel Embiid has been on the floor, the Sixers are outscoring opponents by 13 points per 100 possessions. That is completely, completely ridiculous. And their starting five, their intended starting five of Curry, Simmons, Green, Harris, and Embiid, plus 17. Those lineups are demolishing people. And while, you know, Embiid has been a monster, it's not like everyone on the end, Curry has been very good. It's not like everyone is on all cylinders. Like, this is truly anomalous. Like, I think Embiid is capable of playing this well. 
my concerns are twofold. One, stop me if you've heard this before. I'm not trusting everything that when when Embiid is off the floor, like I know that they try to get Dwight Howard, the offense in those lineups has been really limited and it's going to be hard unless, you know, Simmons takes a real step forward. That might actually be a hard nut to crack just because of the the what the personnel they have. And then the other one is the track record of teams like this in succeeding in the playoffs in the modern era. Like it's just, it hasn't really happened a lot. And some would point to Denver making the conference finals. I would say that Denver and Philadelphia succeed in different ways. Like, I, I don't know that that's a direct parallel, though both teams are their best players the center. And even that is, is unusual enough. So yeah, I would say Philly has been, they've been the best team in the East so far to me, especially with the kind of the caveat that Embiid has, you know, maybe missed more time than we would hope in the playoffs and everything else like that. But yeah, the Nets are the Nets are the 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 they're the monster in the closet because they don't need anything for their like their offense is is great now and their offense will continue to be great. And while it is going to be very difficult, I just did a piece with our colleague Alex Schiefer on on the difficulty of building, you know, adding further for Brooklyn. What they have is this unusual circumstance for a really good team, which is that almost anything that is capable will help them defensively. So I don't think that Norvell Pell and Iman Shumpert necessarily are the solution because of some of their other limitations. But Brooklyn has, to me, the most straightforward case for basically any buyout player. And there are a there are a fair number of players on expiring contracts. So while Brooklyn, I think it's very difficult, this came up in the JJ Reddick discussion, I think it's very difficult for them to acquire somebody via trade unless somebody's really interested in Dinwiddie and they're willing to just cut bait on that. Brooklyn has to be just this tantalizing buyout place and could potentially be tantalizing enough that a player leaves some real money on the table. And if that happens, then maybe we see something. I mean, it's too bad George Hill got hurt because I feel I feel like George Hill's the guy that everyone has their their eye on. But I mean, if you're any decent caliber defensive two way wing that that is looking into a buyout, it's a pretty easy pitch for Brooklyn. They're like, hey, you can be literally our fifth most important player on our team. So come join us. Yeah, so or, that's a, or, that's a, a, or another center, like just getting just getting a, a capable center, ideally who could move their feet a little bit. I think that would really help them a lot. Yeah. They could use like they have and the Nets, we've seen Steve Nash do this and I, I've been very excited to see it so far. That they don't need all three of their guys to be playing in a game to have a really good chance. So they can do the approach of giving them more minutes and then giving them days off. It's an interesting idea. I've actually heard some players, like I've, ta- I've talked over the years with guys, that there are some players who actually much prefer that. They would rather play 36-37 every game they play and then just not play as many games rather than play 28-30 to 30 per. Yeah, and you know Kyrie can really only play 30 a game before his knees start to fall apart. So <laughs> you probably have to do that. And they, they should And they shouldn't they be limiting... Durant's minutes too, considering that he's returning from an Achilles. I feel like they should be trying to yeah, you know, I, moderate that load a little bit too. And I think they should um, be doing they should be doing a better job. I mean, Nash, there was that that oh crazy overtime game against Cleveland where I think Durant played fifty minutes, and that you you like yes, I support the idea at least conceptually with your if it's your medical staff is believing in it of give your guy you know more full days off and and then more minutes per game. But that that freaked me out that he didn't play the next game, but that. That happens, you know, they're being judicious overall with that. And also, I expected, you know, there was the, the lingering question, you know, and I'm not going to answer this definitively right now. We still need a lot more time. 
But was Harden going to change his approach? Was Harden going to change his game to be a part of a different system, a different combination of stars? And I believe the preliminary answer to that is yes. And I mean, the funny thing is, if you just look at just the last game, they basically just went isolation, taking turns over and over and over again in crunch time. It it worked out very beautifully. They just basically kept, you know, uh, somebody would come around on a curl towards the top of the arc and the swing would come to them and they would get a bit of a clear out and they would go to work or Durant would you know, post up uh, in the pinch post and he would go get into his high post ISO game. So I think they, they find that they can just kind of keep everyone happy. Um, and it's funny, there was a, there was a reporter that uh, he said after the game, so like the, the closing sequence was like Harden, Kyrie, Harden, Durant, Durant, Harden, Durant, something like that. And he's like, what did you think of that? Was that what you guys envisioned? And Katie was like, yep, that's exactly what we were going for. And it works pretty well. And everybody got their touches and everybody got to make a big play at the end of the day. And it's, I just, you got to think for Harden. Like, do you really think he enjoyed having insane usage where he's constantly taking terrible shots, you know, just working his ass off on offense every single night and every single game for years and years? I don't think he wanted that. If he did, they wouldn't have been getting Chris Paul and then Russell Westbrook, who especially Russell Westbrook, who's already a super high usage guy. I, I think Harden wanted to be in this kind of situation, especially now that he's getting older uh, and, and you know he's going to start having less and less energy and he's going to he's going to he's not going to be able to recover from minor uh, you know little ankle sprains and stuff like that that he suffers all the time in the same manner. And I think the one thing we're seeing that's been positive is that his effort on defense, I think, has been better since he got there. And that's probably because he just got there and he's going to be trying for a little while. But obviously, lightening the load and the usage for him on offense is and just allowing him to stand around for a few possessions a game is going to allow him to play with more energy on defense. I wondered going into this season in particular, because the Rockets were, you know, they had some real bright moments last year, especially when Westbrook was tearing it up in the, the second half of the regular season before he got hurt and and I believe got COVID. But this year, you know, when 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 Harden was on the Rockets, credit wasn't on the Rockets very long. It was it was this this idea of whether you know I, I, the the term I think the first person who I heard say it was was Ben Golver. I might might have been Pelton or somebody else. It was basketball mortality, and so basically the idea is that at some point you're going to lose some of it. And you're also, you're not going to be that long in the league. You're not going to be able to be the best player or a very good player on a competitive team forever. And so I wondered whether, and this is a personal preference thing, whether Harden would rather play the game that Mike D'Antoni had allowed him to play on progressively less and less competitive teams, partially due to his, you know, eventually diminishing powers, or because, you know, he was playing for Tillman Fertitta, who was saving money and doing all these other things. And the Rockets just, you know, they weren't going to be as good anymore. And it is completely justifiable, if not totally unsurprising, that Harden, when given the opportunity, would choose to be a smaller piece in a bigger machine when you consider that he hasn't been on great teams forever. I mean, he had a couple a couple years on the Rough Thunder, though he was on those bad Thunder teams less time than Westbrook and Drake because he was drafted last. So it's not a surprise to me that it's like being on a really good team is pretty fun. And it's not a surprise to me that somebody who is who knows the game as well as he does and who has been a part of successful teams in his past would prefer that and is willing to at least temporarily, but probably more significantly, buy in to what it takes to do that. And he's doing it with KD and he's in I, I mean, I don't know much about his relationship with Kyrie before that, but he's doing it with people that he knows and he, he trusts. And um and uh, and Mike is obviously there too. 
Um, but I, I think the answer is pretty obvious in that just like look at how miserable he was at the end of those playoff series the last few years. Right. Like, from back when okay, – go, go No, I was going to say the comments that Harden made at the end of their series loss to the Lakers were when I was like, oh, this isn't going to last very long because it it seemed like it was really beating him down like in a, in a way that it hadn't before. Mostly I think because they, they weren't close at all. Like they, it wasn't – you know, got to the conference finals, a few things went wrong and did the other. They just, they got their butts kicked and the Lakers ended up being the eventual champions, but we didn't know that then. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is like, okay, Harden had that moment where they were, I, I think they were, they should have won the championship that year. And then they had the infamous game seven where they missed all the threes and, you know, when CP got hurt, I think that was the same year, right? It so, was. I mean, I, I think, I think that season proved that he was great enough to win a title and they, they just got really bad luck right when they were about to, you know, get to the get close to the finish line, I guess. And so I think that was enough for him to justify it to in his mind that I was at my peak good enough to take a team pretty much to the finish line. And you know what? I'm getting towards the end of my peak now and I still want to be a great part of a championship team. And I'm tired of these miserable situations where I'm getting all the blame for my team failing. And I'm running this ridiculously heliocentric system where they're like triple teaming me the entire time in the playoffs. And it's just like it's impossible for me to continue to put up good numbers and still look good in the playoffs when these defenses are keyed on me. So every other player in the league has made the same decision that he's made. Or I should say every other player that's won a championship essentially in the league has made that decision. Uh, even with Golden State, you know, they chose to bring in KD instead of keeping it the homegrown model because everybody recognizes that it's just, it's fair game if you can't pull an MJ anymore. You know, it's like, whatever, just get a championship and have your championship and not worry about whether you were the best player on the team and you know what you can get it and he's still young enough that they win the championship this year and or next year or whatever he could still walk away and go try to start over again for the latter or, or you know the latter stage of his career and try to prove he can do it on his own if he really wants to the time crunch of their window is so fascinating to me because yeah it really is this year and next year and they have enough of this season that i think it will count as a totally fair go and we'll see how much ownership is willing to pay because brooklyn actually has the capacity to add some talent you know like they have a disabled player exception from Dinwiddie they have their mid-level which was prorating but prorating pretty slowly if they want to go that direction it's just going to be comically expensive if, if they really want to do it and so will how how close will they get how, how far do they want to go how far do they end up going and all of that it's it's going to be key to watch and the door being a little bit more ajar like as you said you know like they're I'm, I'm interested in where Indiana goes from this. I mean, I think that the the early returns on their season have been positive. I don't know that they have that like that gear to win three series against capable opposition. Like, I think they're they're that second tier where you don't really expect it. Now, a second tier team makes it to the conference finals all the time, and I think that that's kind of where Indy is. I think that's where the Raptors are, you know, when they're when they're with it in full strength. And I don't know where to put Miami. They're the team I'm really unsure about. So I think that that's that's really good news for a couple different reasons. One, that means that I think these teams could potentially be more aggressive at the deadline because if it seems a little bit more wide open, that generally leads to teams thinking, okay, a, a move could get us into it. And then the other part of that is I think it's going to be really fun for the playoffs and it might be more of a styles make fights and some of these other other things. And it's going to take a lot more time for us to figure it out. And it's like one of the weird parts for me is we're in February 
And so I, my brain is telling me, okay, it's February. You need to start feeling more confident in your, your, asse- your assessments of these teams. And I have to remind myself, it's February, but it's really not because we're about – We're a month into the season. We're a month into the season. And, and that's, <laughs> the, that's the challenge that I'm really having so far is my brain telling me be, like, be more assertive. And I'm like, A, the season is super weird. And B, it's not, you know, an, it's not apples to apples. And it's not even apples to apples comparing it to like 20 games in to another season. You know, I haven't even calculated this yet. But, you know, so we, we just passed, I think, the quarter mark of the season for most of these teams. Is the trade deadline earlier relative to the usual number of games played this year, or is it about the same? I believe preliminarily that it is. And and obviously with a lot of these teams that are getting stuff delayed, I think it's going to be even more pronounced there. Yeah, I think the trade deadline off the top of my head, it's usually around like 65% of the season. And I think this time it's maybe around 55%. Okay. So, I mean, that's probably not a big enough difference for us to have a you know completely different view on how these teams are. It's only 10 well, games. It, although- it, it, is, it is and it isn't because, remember, the other element of this season is just the extended absences. And so I think for some of these teams, it being shorter and, you know, like, I mean, Minnesota is their own thing. But you could think about all the you know teams that have been south. Miami has had guys out for a long time due to, due to COVID and, and some due to injuries like they're they're gonna have to figure this stuff out pretty quickly. Not in terms of like oh the record or everything like that, but like Pat Riley thinking, do we need to add something? Do we need to get better? Well, I think the biggest question is: Are the Wizards and the Pistons going to be sellers? Because they're they're completely at the bottom. I mean, the Wizards, I think, have still they played what seventeen games so far, so they're only this, you know four or five games, I guess, behind everybody else in number of games played. No, maybe a little bit more than that, but so. I, but I think the Wizards, if they don't have another outbreak, will probably have enough time to have a pretty clear picture on where they're going this season. And so far, they're certainly making it sound like they're not being uh, they're not planning to be sellers. But also they have Troy Brown not playing at all right now. And Troy Brown, I thought was going to be a starter for them this year. So, you know, it's like they, they've got a bunch of guys that I think other teams are going to find valuable that they can cash in on. But. Obviously, it all depends on what are they going to do with Bradley Beal, who both sides insist don't, are are not ready for a divorce quite yet. Um, well, and even I, though I, I talked about seems some, inevitable. I talked about this a little bit with Nate on Dunked on, which we recorded on Tuesday. But Beal, whether it's temporarily or you know more extended than that, is off the market. I, I think that that actually is a decent calibration of where we are right now. And when you think about the perfect storm that it really takes for a superstar trade. And Beal's not, I don't think of him in the same caliber as like Anthony Davis when he got moved. And we can make arguments about Paul George. I still think Paul George was higher in MVP rankings the year before he went to the Clippers than Bradley Beal has ever been and likely will ever be for me. And of course, Harden has won it. But there, I, I don't see a team right now that is extremely asset rich or not asset rich willing to throw everything in the way that Brooklyn did that is that is there and it's possible that opens up by by March I, I I think that there is a chance but to me the more likely scenario is that everybody reevaluates in the off season in you know let's say late July early August I mean the wizards will be done before that in all likelihood but at that point then the beauty of sports 
is that almost everybody sees it ends in disappointment. And so will that fuel maybe like Denver putting more people into a package than we expected? Golden State maybe throwing Wiseman, maybe even the Minnesota pick, whether it conveys this year or not. And so I don't think that offer is there right now, but it could be later. So maybe this actually works out pretty well for everybody, as long as Beal doesn't care about being on a good team this year. And maybe be, and maybe he just straight up wants to stay. And if that's the case, more power to him. I mean, it, the feedback I've always gotten was that he really wanted to build a team around him. And that's certainly what he's gotten now. And he looks pretty miserable going through that experience. So I don't know when yeah, that well, finally changes. Well, that's but, the, we got so. into this a little bit with Harden, which is everybody wants to be the best player in a championship team themselves. What Beal is going to have to reconcile is that, A, that's probably not going to happen anywhere. But B, it's almost definitely not going to happen in Washington because the Wizards, partially due to Beal sticking around, are and partially just the John Wall contract not working out and a bunch of other things, they don't have the capacity unless Hashimura and Avdia and and they figure out something even better at center than like way better at center than they have before. Like not only is it not going to happen for Beal probably anywhere, it's almost definitely not going to happen there. And so then it becomes, well, what do you want more? Do you want to be here? Do you want to be the guy here? Or do you want something else? And there's no shame in making any decision there. Beal wants to be, like, there's this thing about Dirk, like, in the Shams, in the Shams Fred Katz piece about Dirk Nowitzki. Well, I don't think he's going to be Dirk, he's going to be Dirk Nowitzki and they're going to be the Mavericks for a bunch of different reasons. And so then it becomes, well, what do you, what do you want most? And I don't know what the answer to that will be, but I do think that by, I'm not going to say by August of this year, I'm going to say by the trade deadline next year, Beal will have a pretty good idea of what you and I are believing right now. I mean, it's just like, I feel like there's two teams out there that are just such an obvious answer for him. And it's the Sixers and the Nuggets. And at least we know the Nuggets can put the package together together to get him. And so, and I mean, the way he's doing it right now, he's going for the prime Kobe play where he's clearly the number one guy. And then there's another all-star on there. That's clearly a number two guy. And I don't think he's good enough to make that happen. Although on the other hand, he is averaging 35 points a game right now, which is uh, that's something Kobe only did once. Although obviously it's a completely different context now because it's way easier to score points than it was back then. But so I just I feel like it's just there's there's just no virtue in winning it all on your own. There's just virtue in winning it. And if like if you can just go partner with another elite MVP caliber player, it's like who cares if you or him is the MVP? You're winning the championship, your profile, your accolades, the way you're remembered, the way that you're viewed by everybody in the history of time, the amount of money you're going to be making on endorsements and all that kind of stuff. It's so much higher if you're the one B or the number two guy on a championship contender than uh, than a guy putting up 35 points per game on the team with the worst record in the NBA. Yeah. I, I broadly agree with you, but I also like this is a point that somebody brought up in the comments and, and every situation is different. And I was thinking about the idea Beal has has young kids about how there could also just be that factor that there's a lot going on right now. Maybe he wants the stability. I don't I don't I don't know. And I and I'm not trying to like send him to other teams. I fully support Beal doing whatever he wants. And I also maybe it's just me being unfair to Beal. I don't think of it as the level of shame like that uh, that 
you know, it was like the potential of Harden, you know, kind of toiling in obscurity as the Rockets faded into nothingness. I don't feel as badly about that happening with Bradley Beal as as with other guys, partially because it's his choice, but also partially just because I don't think of him as that same caliber of guy. Like, I've said this about Paul George before, that I was, you know, like the the lack of time that he had spent on really good teams was part of why I was so thrilled that he, he ended up on the Clippers. But I don't, I just don't see Beal as, you know, like a top, you know, like if he's a top 15, top 20, top 30 player, somebody like that, never being on a championship team, I'm, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be super like dejected about it, though I would be as a Wizards fan, obviously. But as like an <laughs> analyst, like that's, to me, that's not the level of like, let's call it a basketball tragedy that a top 10 player never being on a contender would be. You know, I, I think he's just, he's in the same situation that Anthony Davis was in New Orleans where... Right. They made a good faith effort to try to build a team with him. Where back when he wasn't even as good as John Wall, uh, you know, five years ago, where Otto Porter was looking like the ideal complementary piece, and they had a really nice team there, and they had that one run where they went to seven games in the second round against Boston, where. They, it looked like they were on the path to potentially getting to the finals as those guys continue to get better. And then Porter and Wall's bodies just fell apart. And Beal just got really unlucky the same way that Davis did. And so Davis just realized, like, as the team was kind of toiling, trying to figure out how do we rebuild after giving these contracts to these players and never stayed healthy. Uh, what it, And we haven't really hit on any draft picks uh, to get another star, even though we've gotten some good rotation players. And AD was just like, I can't wait around forever for this. I'm entering my prime. It's time for me to move on. And I think Beal is right about at that same age and that same level of experience. And so that decision's just coming up probably next year if it's not happening this year. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. Uh, anything else that you want to discuss? Uh, you know, one thing you said before I just wanted to go, go back to was uh, comparing Philadelphia and Denver and how they both have center-focused offenses. I think it maybe is changing a little bit with the way that Embiid's being used this year, but I do think it's important to note that they're very different offensive systems. Oh, that, absolutely. That's what that's the yeah. point I was. That's kind of what I was mentioning is that they're they're similar in one respect, but not in basically every other one. Yeah, and I think that you know the interesting thing is that like Jokic, I think is the more modern conception of how you can run an offense through a center, while Embiid is trying to graduate out of the more traditional idea to the you know, to the more modern idea and it's funny because i think Embiid has the skill set and the physical tools needed to be able to operate as a high post center or a triangle style center the way that Jokic does most of the te- time and i'm hoping i mean it seems like they're making some progress on that this year um and i'm, I'm hoping obviously if if mb continues to shoot well and can start to uh, raise the volume and the number of shots he's taking a game and take smarter shots the way that Jokic tends to take uh, smarter shots although he also takes a lot of his uh dirk fadeaways from 30 feet out the same way that mb does and he actually hits them but i think Embiid is you know starting maybe by just seeing the success that Jokic is having i think he's starting to learn that he needs to kind of reshape the way that he plays and i think if he makes that successful transition he's you know looking at at an MVP, being a perennial mvp here's and actually hoping. winning yeah that, that would be that'd be great to see and i i've Embiid has had that MVP potential, like the idea that if it all worked out, because he can be a phenomenal defensive player and then becoming a more efficient offensive player. So we'll have to see. But thank you so much for taking time. Pleasure as always. It's always fun, man.
Thanks again to Jared Weiss for taking the time to come on. You can read his excellent work at The Athletic. And of course, you can also follow him on Twitter at Jared Weiss NBA, J-A-R-E-D-W-E-I-S-S-N-B-A. Love having him on. And I'm fascinated by the Celtics this year. I'm wondering where they where they kind of settle in in this uncertain East playoff picture. So I was happy to have Jared on and good to talk about some of the other kind of broader issues as well. If you want to support the show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can subscribe, download every episode, whatever podcast player you use, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever. It is much appreciated. You can also tell other people about it. One way to do that is leaving a rating, leaving a review. Another way is just word of mouth, telling people, hey, I like this episode. I liked, I like this show in general, and that helps other people find it. The show has gone on a long time, but that can be very useful. In terms of my other work, Dunked On, we are back to a five times a week schedule. Took a little bit of time off last week, but still doing, you know, back to five of public episode on Sunday night slash Monday in the day. And that is typically going to be a 15 and 60. We did the East last week. We'll do the West this coming week. And then Dunked On Prime is the other four days in the week. We're going to do some really fun stuff the rest of this week. So looking forward to that. Also, the NBA cast, we're still doing the League Pass broadcast. That is every Monday, and the one for the coming Monday is going to be Warriors-Spurs. We just did Lakers-Hawks, which was an intensely fun game last week, and that's on League Pass Digital. It's a great opportunity. We absolutely love being able to call a game, and you can watch it. It's not syncing up, not anything else. So hopefully you get the opportunity to try it out, whether you want to do a one-off with League Pass or have a subscription, like of course I do. Also have plenty of written work, uh, some collaborative stuff that is, I I mentioned the piece with Alex Schieffer, that's already out. And then I wrote about the supply-demand issue for the 2021 offseason recently, and then I have a couple other irons in the fire, if you will, that that should be coming out over the next little bit. So you can keep an eye on that, um, all, of course, at The Athletic. And if you have any feedback on this show, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is an absolute promise or reply if I can. Um, but it is about, if it's input, it's about me reading it. And that is something that I do every day before I go to sleep. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.